But I want to ask you that question. What sort of things do you fear? What sort of things are you dealing with in your life? Maybe it's being alone. Maybe it's a fear of rejection. Maybe there's someone you're really burdened for in your life and you feel called to maybe share something with them about Christ but your fear of being, fear of being rejected. Maybe it's just a general fear of being rejected. I know a lot of young people deal with this at school. I dealt with this coming up to middle school and high school and even in college. The pressure to be popular, to be cool, to have friends and to do what the other people are doing. Rejection is very real. Maybe the fear of not having friends or losing your spouse. Maybe it's the fear of death or being exposed, exposed somehow. Maybe the future of your children is something you are concerned for, your grandchildren or great-grandchildren. Maybe it's being poor, losing your home, not having food for tomorrow, or losing your job. All of us deal with fears, but think for a moment, take a moment maybe, and ponder what it is that you struggle with. As we think about fear this morning, Jeremiah is going to speak to us. God's going to speak to us through this word, and Jeremiah, or at least I, I hope he will. Um, we should think about what fear is. Fear is a very powerful thing, but what is it? We should try and understand exactly what fear is. And someone who wrote another book, I brought a couple of little books with me this morning, that I wanted to encourage you, if you have a pen, you can jot, jot this down. This, this book is, you know, I don't know, 7 or $8 or something like that. Um, it's called The Two Fears. Tremble Before God Alone is the title. And um, it's written by a man named Chris Poblete. Poblete, or something, I don't know how you say exactly his last name. Um, but he writes this about fear, okay? To fear something is to give credence to its power over you. Credence is not a word we hear a lot. Let me explain, he says. So when children are afraid of the dark, they give credence to the power that darkness has over them. Fear that of something maybe that could be lurking in the darkness or in the shadows, right? When one fears being alone, he gives credence to the power of loneliness over him. He accepts the very true possibility that he will never experience fulfilling companionship. So that's kind of the idea that fear is getting at. That's what fear is. To give credence to something that you're scared of or some idea. Today's passage, I think, has something very, very deep and very profound to say to us about fear from a man who is very acquainted with it. And from a man who lived during a time that in many ways resembled our own. To set the stage, I want to ask you to close your eyes for a moment or look off in the distance or whatever you need to do to not be too distracted. But I'm going to try and paint a picture. And it gets hypothetical. Again, this is based on some of my fears. And they may be totally unfounded or whatever, but just play with me for a minute. Kind of meander in your imagination here with me for a moment as I try and set the stage for what uh, Jeremiah is saying to us uh, this morning. Or God is saying through the prophet Jeremiah. Okay, as hard as it may be, imagine that our land right here in South Royalton, in central Vermont, maybe New England, maybe even across America, decays spiritually to the point to where nobody considers going to church. Nobody goes to church. Nobody reads their Bibles, and in a way, you know, we're seeing more of this, and especially in this part of the country. But nobody knows of the great stories of Abraham, or Joseph, Moses, or King David, or Jesus. If you were to say to people something about Moses or King David, they might look at you cross eyed Who is that? Great ignorance sets in across the land here, and people begin to experiment with different forms of spirituality, magic, witchcraft, maybe even idol worship, or ancestral worship, and so on. 
Maybe, maybe even in time, some kind of idol, as hard as it is to imagine, is erected out on the green here in town. Christianity is publicly outlawed, Bibles are confiscated, and the internet is regulated so that you can't even find a Bible online anymore. Those Christians that do remain must meet privately without government knowledge. Maybe imagine that unrest begins to grow in our land and maybe, maybe there's in the past been some, you know, some uprisings or whatever that have been squashed. Blood is shed as the rebellion is put down, as these little skirmishes are put down. Even many innocent people are killed in the process. As hard as it may be, imagine that their bodies are not even properly cared for and they're left strewn all over the town as reminders of the penalty for defiance. Over time, maybe due to financial crisis or neglect or whatever, this building here is still remaining, still standing. It's closed. And for, year, for years, nobody steps foot inside. It becomes a shadow of what it is now. Cobwebs, dust, paint chips, and so on gather everywhere. A few of the old beautiful stained glass windows have been busted. A few puddles can be found here and there around the edges of the sanctuary. A cold breeze blows through from time to time. Maybe one of the chandeliers has fallen. Maybe someone came in and covered a few items with tarps or cloths to show, to sort of slow down the decaying process. Maybe a few critters even move in, so as you, if you were to walk through, you'd maybe hear the sound of bats and mice and so on. Try to imagine, again, if you will. Then imagine that maybe one day, after many, many years of decline and decay and spiritual bankruptcy, a local state politician orders someone to check out that old church building on the green in South Royalton. Maybe he's a spiritual man who's interested in bringing back some of the old ways. The person who is sent comes inside and takes a look around and starts uncovering things, taking pictures and so on. Overall, the place looks barren. There were no valuables lying around since the place had been looted some years back or so appearances suggested. As he walks into the sanctuary, he's intrigued by this symbol up at the front of the sanctuary here. Not knowing exactly what it is, maybe he becomes curious and kind of meanders up this way. And he walks up and stares at the strange creature hanging on the wall. It looks like a female human being with abnormally large breasts and with extremities of other animals. On the floor, discarded off to the side, he notices a cross. It was not covered or cared for and has begun to decay. He comes up to the altar here, which has been covered up for quite a long time by some cloth sheet. And he removes it as curiosity gets the best of him to see what's below it. He finds a large book that was left there, opened up as it is right here today. It's fairly well preserved, so he decides to collect it and take it back to his boss. And upon reporting to his boss, he's explaining the details of what he's found. He's showing pictures and whatnot and explaining what he thinks it might cost to restore the building. He then shows his boss the book that he's found and he reads the front cover and it says the Holy Bible. The elected official, this state official or whatever, asks him to open it and read a couple of sections to him. And as he listens, he grows more and more intrigued. He stands up and begins to pace the room. He asks for another chapter and yet another chapter to be read. Finally, he can take no more and dismisses the gentleman who's been reading to him and he falls upon the floor weeping uncontrollably. After a while, he manages to get himself together and he steps out 
And he finds where his secretary is there at the desk. And he asks her to drop everything she's doing. And to gather his board of advisors as soon as possible. Once everyone is together, he directs the group to make the restoration of the places of worship their number one priority. He orders that the, the idols to pagan gods that have been set up across various greens in Vermont to be taken down and removed. And he plans to repeal the legislation or whatever that's, been, that's made the publication and distributions of Bibles illegal. I know that's probably pretty hard to imagine. It seems extremely far-fetched, and I'm not suggesting that the future looks like that. But that's not far, actually, from what happened during the reign of King Josiah. Josiah is one of the kings mentioned in our passage today. Jeremiah was living when, during Josiah's reign, and this almost verbatim happened during Josiah's reign. The book of the law one day was discovered as people were going into the temple to, um, I guess, to put some money there to do some, you know, to restoration work or whatever. People went in and they discovered the book of the law after tremendous neglect in many years of, a, of pagan idol worship. And Josiah restored, um, it prompted Josiah to restore pure worship to Israel after decades of corruption. And you can read about it in 2 Kings 22. But something about painting the picture here makes it a little bit more real for us. Josiah's father, just to give you a little bit of context, again, Josiah being a king that was reigning when um, Jeremiah was alive. Josiah's father was Ammon and his grandfather was Manasseh. And Manasseh is considered by, by many to maybe be the most evil king in all of Israel's history. 2 Kings 21 says this of Manasseh. To give you a sense of... This was, this was right on the, around the time. This, just, this had just come to a conclusion right around the time Jeremiah was called as a prophet. So I want to give you a sense of what was going on. 2 Kings 21. He sacrificed, this is speaking of Manasseh, his own son in fire. Practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the, in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. Moreover, Manasseh shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. end besides the sin that he had caused Judah to commit so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Manasseh was a terrible man. And actually near the end of his life, there's a passage in there that really seems to indicate that maybe Manasseh came to his senses and repented and came to the Lord. But Manasseh reigned 55 years in Israel. So 55 years of this. And then Ammon came after him and was alive for just a couple of years. And then came King Josiah. And Josiah was a good king. So Jeremiah is called about five years after Josiah... After the book, excuse me, after the book of the law was discovered, I think it was like in the 10th, or maybe it's, what does it say, 13th year, is that right? Something like that, of Josiah's reign. And because Josiah was a godly king, Jeremiah was put on the forefront in many ways of what was going on in society. So Jeremiah wasn't kind of a, a fringe guy under Josiah's reign. He was given a lot of um, space to communicate, I guess. But here's what I'm getting at. I want you to have, get you, you to have a sense of this. Jeremiah's time as a prophet was unbelievably tumultuous. Right before him, all this stuff with Manasseh. And then we're going to hear some prophecies here in a minute of what was going to happen after Josiah passed. There was ups and downs and all over the place um, during Jeremiah's life. So just as I just mentioned, Israel had just come out of the depths of idol worship and evil that we can't even fathom. 
that's hard for us to even grasp. It appeared that things would be good for a while, but there was still the uncertainty of the future. God's judgment is looming throughout Jeremiah as you read the book of Jeremiah. What happens after Josiah discovers the law? I want to give you a sense of this. So they discover the book of the law, right? In the temple. They come, they bring it. The priest and some of his uh, Josiah's servants bring it uh, before him and they begin to read it. And here's what it says. Actually, Josiah um, responds by tearing his cloak and getting on the floor and weeping is a picture you get. Just an intense response to God's word. And he says, okay... What will God have us do? And he says, okay, go. Go to this prophetess. Her name is Huldah, I think. And here's what she says. She said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Tell the man who sent you to me. This is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people according to everything written in the book the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and aroused my anger by all the idols their hands have made, my anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah, that is Josiah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I had spoken against this place and its people, that they would become a curse and be laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place. So they took her answer back to the king. But from the sounds of what we just read, right? He doesn't guarantee that it's going to be, the peace is going to outlive Josiah. When Josiah dies, it sounds like it's on. Right? God says, I have put up with these people for too long is the essence of what seems to be saying. So there's this sense of looming judgment throughout Jeremiah. And what do you know? What happens right in chapter 1 of Jeremiah, if you keep reading down a little bit, right there after the passage we read, uh, that Laurel read for us this morning, it says this in verses 13 through 16. I'm just trying to give you a sense here. The word of the Lord came to me again. This is, that is to Jeremiah. What do you see? I see a pot that is boiling, I answered. And it is tilting toward us from the north. The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I am about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness and forsaking me and burning incense to other gods and in worship, worshiping what their hands have made. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if God came to you, again, hypothetically speaking, about this land and said, this is going to happen, Jeremiah, and it don't matter what you do. This is going to happen. That in a short time, America would be overthrown, foreign armies would come in and besiege its capital. Can you imagine? Jeremiah, right at the beginning of his call into ministry, God told him that this was coming for Israel. He knew where Israel was headed. So even though things felt secure and felt pretty good, Josiah was on the throne, Josiah is a pretty good guy, things feel okay, he's taken down the altars, things seem to be going well. God said to Jeremiah, it doesn't matter. 
because of what Manasseh did and Ammon did. And these people have rejected me for decades. And I'm tired of it, is the essence of what God says. He knew it wasn't going to last. Just making changes to laws and stuff like that doesn't change people's hearts. It was a band-aid. The people's hearts were still far from God over and over and over again. As you go throughout Jeremiah, you're going to see that the people are unrepentant and disregard God's truth over and over and over. Especially look, maybe make a note there. Look when you get home or sometime today. Jeremiah 8, verses 4 through 8. And you really get a sense of this. Okay. My point I'm trying to drive home here. Give you a sense of context. But so you can see, Jeremiah saw it all. Jeremiah saw. He just... He was a young lad not long after Manasseh and all these guys were slaughtering people and filling Jerusalem with blood. He saw Josiah's good reign, right? He saw the good days of Josiah. It was about 30 years or so. And then he saw what came afterwards. The ups, the downs, the turmoil. The good, the bad. And Jeremiah knew somehow, because God seems to have spoken to him, that God's judgment was coming and he could do nothing to stop it. What would that do in your heart? be afraid probably, wouldn't you? You know it's going to happen. God has said it. We create great fear. Great anxiety. With each rejection, God comes to Jeremiah. He says, go speak this word to the people. And Jeremiah goes out and he shares God's word with them. And they reject it. Over and over and over again. And you sense as you go through the book of Jeremiah, this increasing turmoil of Jeremiah longing for the people to see and to repent. But they just keep sealing their own doom over and over again. The agony is hard as you read, if you were to read through the book of Jeremiah. So twice in chapter 1, what we see for these reasons, God says to Jeremiah what? In verses 8 and verses 17. Do not be afraid, Jeremiah. Do not be afraid. Do not be terrified, he says in 1. The implication is that Jeremiah was shaking like a leaf. God, you're going to do this to this nation, to your people? Would create unbelievable anxiety. But God says, do not be afraid. So the first thing to take away from this, I want to try and elaborate a bit on maybe what this means for us. The first thing is this. Just as this, even this Buddhist nun said, fear is normal. Fear is common, right? Fear is something that's common to man. We've seen that Jeremiah was a man of fears. King David, a man of war. A warrior, a great and powerful, maybe one of history's greatest warriors in many respects. Defeated Goliath the giant, pushed back Israel's enemies, right? After coming in, after uh, King Saul had basically goofed things up, David comes in and he's given a task of really sort of clearing out things and then Solomon's reign is peaceful but David was a man of of war but David David had fear sometimes if you look in Psalm 56 1 through 3 David says this he says be gracious to me O God for man tramples on me all day long an attacker oppresses me my enemies trample on me and many attack me proudly when I am afraid I put my trust in you David says so David was a man who feared at times this mighty warrior who you gathered watching his life didn't fear anything. But before God, he admitted, God, sometimes I'm really afraid. And even the Lord Jesus at times, right, seems to have struggled with fear. 
In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see him in agony as he ponders the suffering that he is about to endure. We see fear around every corner of the Bible. And I think uh, the impression I'm trying to give you here is that it's normal, okay? Everywhere you go in the Bible, you're going to find people that fear. Some fear is portrayed as appropriate and godly and healthy. Other fear, not so much. Other fear is ungodly and even sinful. Proverbs 1.7, speaking of godly fear, says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Here is a healthy kind of fear, without which it says you can't have a genuine knowledge. If you're not starting from a place, a right perspective with God, everything else is skewed. Right? So a fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, says Solomon, one of the wisest man, men in history. But the second thing we need to see this morning, so fear is common, right? Everybody deals with it. It's all over the place in the Bible. You and I know this. We see it in the animal kingdom. It's all over. Fear is common. But the second thing we need to see is that all fear is not good. Fear can be a sinful thing. It can be a good thing, as I just said from Proverbs 1-7, when it's rooted in a right understanding of God. But it can be a sinful thing. So look at verses 6-8 through eight with me. If you've got your Bibles open there, which I want to encourage as much as I can. Jeremiah says to God, Alas, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. And then God does what? He corrects Jeremiah, or maybe it's a rebuke, or I don't know exactly, can't feel the force of this, but it maybe feels like a, a slight rebuke here to Jeremiah. He says, don't say such things in essence. God will be with you, and I will give you words at the appointed time, he says. So from the sounds of it here, Jeremiah is doubting God's presence, or maybe God's ability to help him. To help him, and that results in what? Fear. The doubt, the worry, the idea that maybe God can't or isn't able to meet me where I am creates fear in Jeremiah. That kind of fear is the kind of fear that God rebukes. The kind of fear that doesn't please the Lord. Fear that is sinful is a fear that stems from a lack of trust in God. This fear should be combated. It's something that we should fight against. We should seek to rid ourselves of all vestiges of this ungodly fear. But the question is this, okay? Put the question to you. How? How do we fight this ungodly fear that we all deal with, if we're honest and we're real, right? Which I'm trying to be before you here today. We all deal with this sinful kind of fear. Well, look at how God responds to Jeremiah's fear. Let's take a look at this. He gives Jeremiah what? The truth. He reminds Jeremiah of his presence. Look at verse 8. Do not be afraid of them. Why? Not just because, oh, because I said so or whatever, or because your fears aren't grounded. They are grounded. We're going to be destroyed. Sounds pretty rational to me, right? But God says, do not fear, for I am with you and will rescue you. He says the same down in verses 17 through 19. If you go down and read that. Get ready or get yourself ready, he says to Jeremiah. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them. There it is again. Rebuking Jeremiah. Don't be terrified. Don't be afraid. Or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city. An iron pillar and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will but you will not but will excuse me, fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you 
and will rescue you, declares the Lord. So in response to Jeremiah's fear, God says, Do not be terrified. I will strengthen you to stand. They will not overcome you. I will be with you and will rescue you. He preaches truth to Jeremiah, right? He gives him a promise. Jeremiah is to fight his fears by preaching the truth to himself, by reminding himself of God's promises. But notice what God does not promise, if you are looking at this correctly. God does not promise Jeremiah that it will be easy, or that it's going to go well. As we know, as he's told him right here in verses 17 through 19, or what, that section there in Scripture, they're coming. From the north, the people are going to come in and they're going to take over and they're going to raid Jerusalem and they're going to desecrate the temple and they're going to take everything away. They're going to do it. But do not fear. God does not promise Jeremiah that it's going to be easy or that it's going to go well. He promises him his presence. So don't let Satan lie to you. Here's what I really want to say to you. I felt as I was putting this together, I really, this thought came over me like a wave. Don't let Satan lie to you about what God has promised. Because he does this all the time. This is a part of Satan's strategy. It's what he did in the garden, right? With Adam and Eve. Do you remember what he did? He went up to Eve and he said, Well, did God say that to you? And that's where it all started, with the lies, right? He is the father of lies, Jesus said. So don't let Satan lie to you about what God has promised. God has not promised you health. God has not promised you wealth or that things will be easy. God has not promised you that your dreams will all come true. Over and over and over again, Jeremiah pleads with God as you go through this book uh, to God to save Israel from destruction and captivity. But God says no. No. God still destroys Jerusalem and takes the people into exile. So the promise to Jeremiah here that they will not overcome you must not mean that the Babylonians aren't going to come and destroy Jerusalem. Because they do. It's historical fact. Or that Jeremiah won't be thrown in prison or that he won't suffer intensely. Because he is and he does. Jeremiah suffers all kinds of things. So don't let Satan convince you of the lie that you're suffering. Here's the hope, okay, in this. That your suffering is because God has abandoned you. It's a lie. Suffering is not a sign of God's displeasure or his absence in your life. Sometimes it is. Sometimes God might remove himself for a season because you're living in sin or, or something along those lines. But what God promised Jeremiah here and what he says to us too this morning was to give us his presence and that he would not be overcome. What does that mean? Okay, so they're still coming in and raiding and what does, what does not overcome mean? In other words, if I'm seeing this correctly, if I'm understanding it correctly and I am prone to error and so if y'all see otherwise, please let me know. Um, but as I understand it here, God would give Jeremiah strength to be faithful to his calling. That's what not being overcome. And I'm calling you to be a prophet, Jeremiah. And don't matter what comes, I will grant you strength to be faithful to your calling. All that Jeremiah needed to be the prophet and leader that God was asking him to be would be given to him by God. God would provide and sustain. That was the promise. That was the truth that David, I think, clung to in the wilderness when he was being hunted. Was that God was enough. Right? If, if we have to have all these things and these blessings, these external blessings, then we're, we're, we're destined to be filled with hopelessness. 
Because we're not going to always have them, are we? Things come and go. People die. Things happen. But you know what's really amazing about all of this? This is the, the point I want to drive home as I close here. When Jesus stood facing the cross, he embraced a kind of agony that you and I will never have to. The agony of total abandonment by the Father. The fears that overwhelmed the Lord Jesus as he lay prostrate on the garden floor that night in Gethsemane were the fears of abandonment. Maybe they were the fears of the pain of the cross. Maybe. But as I understand it, Jesus was afraid because his father was going to turn his back on him. He was going to be utterly abandoned by the one person from all eternity past that he had sweet and loving fellowship with. Jesus knew the companionship and fellowship of God the Father and the Holy Spirit all the way back. But when he went to Calvary and God's wrath was poured out upon him for our sakes, one aspect of his suffering was total abandonment by the Father. Jesus experienced hell on the cross and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's hell. Total abandonment by God. Sinners like Jeremiah did not have to face that kind of agony. King David, even after his great sins, never knew the total agony of abandonment by God. Yet the righteous man, Jesus Christ, did. Why? Because someone had to pay. God is righteous and just is a perfect judge. Is holy. So Jesus willingly comes forward and he said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. As he said in the garden that day, Thy will be done, Lord. I'll go. I'll go. If that's what has to be done. Jesus jumped headlong into the greatest of all fears possible for us. He went there for us. Jesus was abandoned completely by God in love for sinners like you and like me and like Jeremiah. So today, as you stand in the face of many fears, no doubt, whatever they are, I'm not going to give you platitudes about everything's going to be okay or whatever because I don't know, right? I mean, people in here are grieving the loss of loved ones. Even today, they died to cancer after prayers of healing. God, heal, God, heal, God, heal. And, they don't, and He doesn't. We don't understand all of that. But I'm not going to give you pious platitudes about it'll all be okay and everything will be fine. No. The comfort is that as you face and stand many fears, the comfort, as you look at the uncertainty of the future, the possibility of cataclysm and change, whatever your fear is, that's one of mine. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I, I shouldn't have that fear. Maybe it's totally unreasonable, totally ungrounded. I don't know. But that's something I struggle with. I'm just being real with you all. As you look, whatever it is in the eye, whatever your fear is, you can know because of what Jesus did on the cross, God will not abandon you. Fear not, saints. God will be with you. But I'm too young, Lord. I don't, I don't know how to speak, God. I don't have any money, Lord. My body is failing me, God. What will become of our home? I fear for my children. Lord, look where our, our country is going. Look at the way things are now. I don't know what's going to become of my kids. Drugs are everywhere. What's, go what's going on, God? I'm afraid. I'm afraid of my own propensities, Lord. My tendencies towards addiction and towards struggle. 
I can't keep it together. I'm afraid of what I'm going to do to myself or my family. Whatever your fear is, just like the prophet Jeremiah, if you will give credence to the Lord and to His promises over and above the things of this world, in the hour of your trial, you too will be like a fortified city. An iron pillar and a bronze wall in the face of any fear, just like Jeremiah was here. Fear the Lord alone and He will give you everything you need to be faithful when the time comes. They will not overcome you, God said to Jeremiah, for I am with you and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, um, it's a difficult thing to hear that maybe things aren't going to go the way we want all the time. But I think we all know this, Lord. I think we all are quite well aware, having lived just five minutes on this planet, things don't go the way we want to. We try and step off the stage and we trip and fall, or, you know, um, things happen. Um, people die. We get in car accidents. Our health fails us. Um, our finances don't go the way they want. The stock market's up and down. Um, things happen, God. People bomb us. Wars go on all the time. Wars and wars and wars. God, we're so tired of war. But it's life. It's, it's being in this world as a broken people. So if we've had our eyes open at all, Lord, and the people here are, are very discerning and very sensitive to these things, God, we know that things just don't go how we want them to sometimes. We're all well aware. But God, the promise is not for whatever it is that our heart desires necessarily. Maybe it is. Maybe you will grant healing. Maybe you will grant whatever it is that's on our hearts and we're praying for. But the promise is that whatever you send, whatever comes, you will be with us. And you will give us grace to be faithful, which is the most important thing. To stand before God one day and to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. God, we long for that. I pray for these people. I, I sense maybe a, a heavy spirit after that word. I was intending it to be a blessing and a, and a help. And I, and I hope that it will be that to people that they'll find a little wind in their sails. Not to leave here with crippled by fear. That's the whole point of the message, God, is that you would put wind in our sails and give us a boldness and a confidence knowing that no matter what comes, you are with us. Just as you said to Jeremiah, this is coming, Jeremiah, but do not be terrified because I will be with you and deliver you. Thank you for your word, Lord. Apply it to our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.